I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch knows that horse shit tastes kind of good. <clears throat> if you're smart. In heaven, everything is fine. In heaven, everything is fine. In heaven, everything is fine. You got your good thing, and I've got Hey Pete. Hi. I I do think I'm gonna say it right off the bat. I think the secret success of this movie, um, beyond all a bunch of other things that we're gonna talk about, because I fucking love this movie, is that people say that they are smart consistently while rarely demonstrating it. Um and I love that uh it's it's the the real I think possibility this movie presents is that yeah these are all still dumb humans that are still just dumb uh, yeah and i love that or uh, i mean or you know you can go that way or you can go the way that like the dumbest people that i've ever met try really really hard to like hide that and there's and some of the smartest people i've ever met are just like very confident in their ability or like don't or are humble about their ability is probably closer to the truth yeah so they're like, they they're good listeners and they are caring. And the people in this movie are very like arrogant about their intelligence and talk about little brains and such. So yeah. I think your theory probably gels more with reality. Yeah, and I think I do think that's a very explicit joke. But we'll we'll get there. We're really love to watch a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. And we're in our second week of. Moran on Brooks, which is a name I just came up with that might stick or might not. Uh, I don't think we named the month last uh, last week, which we recorded mere minutes ago. But uh, the gist of it is, Peter, co-host of this very podcast, had never seen an Albert Brooks movie. And I love the first four Albert Brooks movies, and they're a lot of fun to talk about. And I suspected that Peter would love them as well. So instead of pairing them chrono or going through them chronologically, because they don't really have a throughput besides just like Albert Brooks essentially plays an Albert Brooks like character in all of them to various uh, degrees and redeemability. <laughs> and uh, otherwise, they're just like general comedies about an Albert Brooks character. But they, there's of, of the first four movies, there is almost a thematic pairing where. Uh, in Modern Romance, which we covered last week, and in this movie, it's more of the Roman, uh, movies about romance specifically and about someone with a lot of general insecurities in the way that impacts their ability to give and receive love. And uh, and what we'll cover uh, the next two weeks, Real Life and Lost in America, is uh, a little – has I mean, Albert Brooks is still a part of those movies, so he still is a very much an Albert Brooks-type character in them – but is a little more uh, satirical on America and Americans and our idea of of what uh, of of everyday people, so to speak, um, than uh, than about romance specifically. So uh, that's the way we decide to pair them. If you think we're wrong, fucking start a podcast and do an Albert Brooks month. I don't know. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but uh, so we should. Part of the reason I'm framing it up that way too is that Peter has not seen real life or Lost in America yet. So we will, I'm sure, compare and contrast these movies as we get to those. But uh, we're, we weren't going to try to fake our way through that, like uh, that. Peter was aware this would this would have been our final episode, and you you have had to, you would have had to give a summary of all the Brooks stuff, and you haven't seen all the Brooks stuff. Um, so yeah, so this uh, this does pair really well with last week's episode, which is something I wouldn't quite have thought of until I watched them essentially back to back. In that. In both of these movies, Albert Brooks plays someone who is somewhat similar. Like, we don't get to see a lot of him, a lot of uh, the Defending Your Life Albert Brooks. In his life, we see little snippets and scenes, which we'll talk about. But you get the sense that he's very similar to the character that we saw in Modern Love. Someone who, uh, in this movie, underlined by fear or neuroses or just general patheticness has not had been successful at marriage, at love, at life, at anything else. And he he is he uses those those qualities to kind of um, mask any sort of personal personal growth. The difference in this movie, uh, which we'll talk about here in a second, is that he ends up finding someone that makes him want to uh, you know, be a better person. We talked a lot about last week that the the too long didn't read of modern romance is, uh, you know, is is the is the Instagram meme of like, you know, uh, boys will do anything but go to therapy. And this movie is a little bit about how someone who has lived a selfish inward life can can at least take a a leap towards trying to to be a better person. I, I love this movie. This is a this is a movie that was described to me when I watched it as a movie that uh, my friend who recommended it saw a hundred times on HBO growing up, and I think that's that's the way a lot of people remember this. You know, it was a PG movie, which means it was on at all hours of the day on various movie channels, and it really has a it has all those hallmarks of like a uh, like a Shawshank type movie, a movie that you could jump in. You know, 30 minutes in, like a, that, we, we've talked, we've used that thing you do as an example of those. We've used Shawshank Redemption, where you can just kind of hop in, and it has such a, not a lazy tone, but an episodic tone that it's easy to kind of jump in and, uh, and they're, enjoy They're going after point. this problem right now. Yeah. They're going after this problem. Exactly. So, uh, they're going to talk longer. <laughs> Took a sip. Uh, but, but yeah, I, uh, so I, but you had never seen this. What? So first off, before we get into it more, what did you think of the pairing between this and Modern Romance? Because I, I never would have thought of it that way until we just happened to watch them back to back and realized like, oh, you could actually make a, not that Albert Brooks said this, but you could make a case that, that uh, this is almost like a different take on the same exact character. Um, I can see that though. Uh, it would. It, it, I, I I think that modern romance. Uh, that character is beyond redemption for me. I, I'm sure Albert Brooks doesn't see it that way, but um, I think he. Does. I think he probably does. Yeah, but like I, I don't. I see that character is beyond redemption for me, and I kind of needed a reset. That this guy in in defending your life, like sure, um, he can be sort of self centered. But the reason that I like him is because like. I never, he never lost me. Yeah. Um, like, the times where he was nervous or, in, in some sense, cowardly or fearful, like, I can understand the reasons why he did all that. Like, yeah. 
that it's a it's a fork in the road and that this movie is like it's sort of a inverse of modern romance yeah. in the sense that like modern romance is almost like a a depiction or a cautionary tale defending your life is like a life affirming movie like truman show or or you know i guess the second half of shawshank or whatever where it's about like despite all of your your shortcomings you have a personal breakthrough you go get the girl you go break out of whatever mental or physical prison yeah, you're in and you ha- having your cynical shell that you've built up to 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 keep yourself safe from the world at personal detriment having it stripped away yeah this is also a movie the pg rating is very funny to me because i can't imagine a child finding this movie in any way entertaining (laughs) (laughs) no i mean i think it's pg for you know no real swears and barely any mention of sex um yeah, it's just. But yeah, it's, this wasn't I, one I of those PG like movies where even I was like, "Oh, hey Maya, you want to watch this with me for the show?" Because it, like the amount the amount you would have to explain to a child feels like a lot. It also like it sort of starts at a Judeo Christian view of the afterlife and then takes that apart. So, in, yeah, interesting. You would say that. So, um, or I guess just a Christian. I I think I use Judeo Christian too much, but just a Christian view of an afterlife because I guess. Um, Jewish people don't really believe in hell, but well, yeah. So this—that's what this started as for Brooke. So we haven't talked about it yet, but he made Lost in America in 1987, and um, I think this is kind of his last masterpiece. And I, I have a feeling a lot of people would agree with that. Although I know some people uh, have more of an affection for 1996 Mother than than I do. Um, but he wanted this idea of a movie that does does the afterlife in a way that is was almost an atheistic or a humanistic version of the afterlife. So not something that was based on a heaven or a hell or a god or anything like that, but something that was closer to reflecting uh, an after. Like if there was an afterlife, it was an afterlife that that humans had gone to and that essentially by this point it would be an afterlife that is basically run and constructed by humans and how would that be all that different from from earth in a lot of respects because the same people who are running the afterlife are the people that used to exist on earth and he liked that idea of how you crack a story about someone going to almost um Almost a uh, Earth-like version of the afterlife that doesn't seem to have any punishments or clear rewards, but has a process that the person has to go go through. And so what what is the humanistic version of that from his perspective? This idea of having to defend your life, having to look back on your life and be judge not good or bad or evil or anything else but judged as to whether you've learned enough that you um you've learned enough that you get to move on to the next place which is very explicitly not heaven because all these people have ended up back here and there's this idea it, it it's it almost feels like a strip out the the heaven and hell components like a a good place version of the afterlife um, or you go back and as someone else and and try it again, and um, and 
but he he you know in a normal normal Albert Brooks fashion was planning to approach it from uh, more of a modern romance or real life perspective. This idea of someone who was cynical and had a shell existing in the world who then goes to the afterlife or a, a purgatory type afterlife and finds himself still caught in the same like foibles that he did on earth. This idea that, you know, for some people it's, it's just this recurring cycle that no matter where you are, you're still worried about uh, the way people judge you, the way the, the kind of uh, societal norms of earth uh, and who you are as a person carry with you everywhere. So in the original ending, he fails so badly that he doesn't even get to go back as a person. He comes back as a horse to really, like, start from scratch and try again. Uh, and that was the original version of it until he uh, ended up meeting and casting Meryl Streep in the role. And Meryl Streep was such an, you know, just a... She, he talks about, like, what a like wonderful... Like, the, the character that she portrays here, he wrote, like, is kind of like what it's like interacting with Meryl Streep in real life, where she just feels to be, like, this glowing orb of energy that you can't help but want to laugh and talk with and stuff like that. And that made him more interested in this idea of a person who's who, who just feels so, um, not like in a manic pixie dream girl way, but like in a... Um, in a like not a or not a person who is perfect in any way they they actually go into that in the movie but someone who shakes you up enough to make you start to have that shell that has been such a part of your life stripped away and how it's almost about that sort of albert brooks character who is filled with insecurities and doubt and fear deciding that they were worth taking a chance on to move forward and so i I do find that incredibly interesting as it relates to the movie we just watched, too, because theoretically this was going to be in that same vein. It was going to be about someone who wasn't able to defend their life, wasn't able to move on, and came back as a horse, which I think is a perfect like ending for this like set of the first four Albert Brooks movie. At Near the end of this movie, you see someone finally kind of shake off the the baggage of what it means to be like human and try to protect your feelings yeah i I obviously like some of the reason that i enjoyed the lighter touch that this movie has is because i had just watched a very grueling movie and i was like (laughs) oh fuck he's gonna do this but like on a cosmic scale (laughs) like i can't handle this I feel like the sort of calm, reasonable, sort of rolling, episodic nature of this is, it's comforting in the sense that it's like, so much of what our views of the afterlife are, um, are these grandly dramatic statements where you pay a riverboat man to carry you across the river sticks and uh you know you get to the gates of heaven and uh saint peter judges you for everything you've ever done and then if you drop through a hole in the clouds into hell like obviously i'm kind of mixing cartoon depictions of the afterlife yeah so I much mean, of our... I, I think a lot of religious depictions of the afterlife might as well be cartoons well yeah yeah and, and, and like our depictions of the afterlife are very often um very dramatic and grueling and sad and it's like the funeral extended into a interrogation of the person's life and it's um 
a lot of that comes from, you know, uh, the Christian point of view is that like, you, you need to be, we need a sense of justice. Like, um, when you die, you should be judged for everything yeah. you ever did. And that has slowly over time expanded from, you know, uh, not slowly, but like over time that expanded from, you know, actual sins, um, murdering people and stealing from people to like, well, did you have sex weird? Um, <laughs> what'd you think about while you were jerking <laughs> off? Um, was it your that... wife? It's still a sin. It just, it's degrees. <laughs> yeah. We got a point system here, buddy. <laughs> exactly. Do you think like do you think hold on do you think like God is like fucking Nate Silver like from Five Thirty Eight, which is like has intricate models that like determine uh, if you and if you move on or not. Uh, I've seen I guess, enough. This guy's going to hell. I guess that's not even a joke. That's essentially what they do in the Good Place, right? Where there's they there's a giant point system, but because there's like no ethical consumption under capitalism no one's gone to heaven in 500 years yeah so the yeah. the the good place is a show that like i like intellectually but i don't actually like watching and i kind of give up at some point oh interesting um, okay um and i like i like find it roughly funny but like I, I you know it's just a show that never really clicked with me but like i did make comparisons to the good place and I did if make you, If we were to, in your defending your life, I think they would show a clip of this conversation. Yeah, probably, probably. Um, I did. I did make comparisons to the Good Place when I was watching it, particularly the sense of absurdism that's sort of grounded in the banality yes. of existence, like Ted Danson making comments about frozen yogurt and whatever. Um, yeah, like, a, a cosmic I love that they de- like... deity that's been alive for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Um, having like deep thoughts about uh, the kookiness of humanity. You called modern romance well observed um, in like the details of him, um, or the way that that the the Albert Brooks character in that movie like deals with the little parts of the of, of breakup um, and the little moments and things like that. I think the afterlife components are at least all are so well observed. In this movie, especially when you factor in that it's like an afterlife created by humans that have been around just longer, but they're still humans, right? There's not yeah. a there's not a cosmic entity. So, like, you know, they have different hotels and uh, based on like what they think, how they think you're gonna do. It's like it's like a class system. They're still like they still they haven't actually made it equal. They they haven't made anything particularly terrible. But they also understand like who their celebrities are that are coming into the place, and like I like the fact that the hotel has like welcomed Kiwanis dead. Like the idea that somehow a sponsorship <laughs> has like extended through like the a bunch of Kiwanis cars all all went off a cliff together. Yeah, and they're like, oh well, we have to welcome them as a group, like you would like a like a when a company books a hotel room or something like that like all those little things that are just like in some ways like just traits of existing on earth being carried out over in like a ridiculous nature is great i love to I, oh sorry i was gonna mention the the comedian scene which we'll probably talk about in more detail is so funny too because it's it's so albert brooks someone who was a comedian or was a stand-up uh, for for a good chunk of his early career, like well observed the idea that like someone who is theoretically no longer has fear and insecurities would be a terrible stand up comic is great. 
Yeah, yeah. Like uh, those those small moments, and combined with the strange bureaucracy of the afterlife. Um, yeah, I think well, there's make, no bad guys either. It makes for it makes for really great comedy, <clears throat> but the sort of calmness about that everyone has uh, about this it doesn't mean there's no stakes there's actually a fairly large set of stakes like that like his life would reset and he would have to learn those lessons again and hopefully in this life he's he's you know set up for success a little bit better um yeah. but he doesn't get to remember anything so there's like some questions we'll have to talk about later like you know all that but the the point is that like um the stakes feel low for Pardon me. The stakes feel low until basically the last 20 minutes, which I think is like a great asset of the picture. I don't particularly like how when you're watching something like The Good Place, hell is constantly... This isn't the my only complaint with the show, but the con- but hell is constantly hanging out over interactions. When my favorite stuff in The Good Place are the small moments where they're making jokes about humanity. Um, but like this heavily plotted series of bureaucracies that they need to climb through. And if you go to this place and get this device, maybe we can be reassessed by this judge. And then, you know, you can affect reality in this area. Like all of that sort of like high stakes plotting in The Good Place, I find very exhausting. The comparison that I would make more, and this is a movie I don't like love, but I I, I do find this aspect of it charming, is Soul, the Pete Docter uh, Pixar movie. Um, Oh, yeah. Disney? I don't know. Whatever. Um, yes, Pixar. They, uh, I stopped being able to keep track of that when Pixar started making Disney movies and Disney started making Pixar movies. Um, Soul, have you seen Soul? Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure if that was one that like you were like, I don't want to show this to my kids, and then you just never watched it. Um, but no, my uh, kids liked it. Yeah, cool. Um, I, I thought it was pretty charming. I like the music in it; it's great. But the the Soul sort of tone. I think more closely correlates with this because there's been a lot of movies about the afterlife being a horrible bureaucracy. I think Beetlejuice is probably the best of them. Um, in Soul, it's like it's it's not about whether or not you go to heaven or hell. I think the movie is <laughs> the movie is kind of agnostic about the afterlife. Um, yeah, it's about the pre-life that it, it's concerned with, and like what what which stage are you going to next? And the point is not like. In that movie, like, are you ascending to some sort of ancestral plane? The comparison point, I think, is that um, they're both focused more on a more um, attainable sort of uh, uh, of personal goal. They're all about personal growth and transcending your, your hiccups yeah. um, that affect people in life. And... They're about breaking through those 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 sort of hiccups and those sort of quirks um, and becoming the person that you should be or the person you want to be. And uh, that sort of casual tone is the reason I, I really liked this movie, because I could spend most of it sort of like calmly reflecting like it's it's like that most of the movie is like. It's like sitting in like a, a meditation garden, thinking about life next to a nice pond. Yeah, like <laughs> almost very literally, you know, like the way that they're and they they do all these things to kind of, um, I think, try to let you sit with what the movie wants to focus on, without getting you like too spun up on the mechanics or impl- implications of some of these things, right? Like, I, I think that's that's a real masterstroke of the movie. There's two scenes specifically where, one, where Albert Brooks is originally like, what about, like, 
kids die and the ripped horn is so good in this in any of these things where he has to like try to oh he's incredible he he was so good at this in larry sanders show either like he just is incapable of sounding truly like sympathetic in any capacity (laughs) or like oh i'm sorry yeah i so which is so like it's that thing of like what are albert brooks (laughs) <laughs> oh, totally get it. Um, <laughs> where Albert Brooks knows that, like, an audience is going to be like, well, what about babies and kids, right? And so it's one of the first questions Albert Brooks asks Rip Torn. Like, what about the, the kids? And uh, Rip Torn's response is like, oh, kids don't need to defend their lives. They get to just automatically go on. Isn't that nice? <laughs> like, that, that thing of just, like, say, do you don't, you as an audience member do not need to worry about where the kids are. They're fine. Isn't that nice? Can we move on with the movie? And then there's a, a little less comedic, but I think very important to be able to buy into the tone is when is this very, like, wonderful, emotional, uh, and also very charming and funny, like, scene where Albert Brooks and Meryl Streep are walking together. And they're talking about their lives. And Meryl Streep talks about like having a seven and a nine year old that she misses, but also doesn't. And she's because she's fine with being removed from them. And she notes that that is a feeling that they are given. Like she's like, they they told us that they, they make us feel that way so that we're able to kind of focus on what we need to focus on. Because um, you'd spend oh, your whole five days mourning otherwise. Yeah, like the loss and stuff like that. And like, so I, I, I like the way that he's able to go like, I'm going to address these things in a way that makes you not also go like, holy shit, this lady just died. <laughs> Lost her husband and her kids and now she's she's laughing with Albert Brooks. Like, I don't know if she, she maybe look at five or six days for this lady. Not yeah, just and like, four. Look at, like all, 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 okay, so. Like, if Aldous Huxley is building a universe for you, like an island or Brave New World or whatever, you're going to sit and you're not just going to, like, ask questions about the world. You're going to expect him to answer pragmatic questions. And that was something that, like, he and his generation of sci-fi authors were so terrific at. Yeah. I'm just using him as an example. Yeah. Somebody who did world building on a level that I think most people could agree with is, is was fantastic. Um. In when Albert Brooks is doing world building, he can make little jokes like, "Well, what happens to teenagers?" Because teenagers are kind of awkwardly between childhood and adulthood, and like they're not quite capable of of being judged that way. But also, like we put a lot of adult shit on teenagers, um, and he's like, "Oh, teenagers were too much trouble. We we send them somewhere else." <laughs> like and like, he's like yeah, that- basically, he's like they're really ruining the vibe for everyone here. Yeah, he's he's like they can the like the joke there is perfect because the joke is covering the joke is doing some lampshading the joke is 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 covering up an area where albert brooks was writing this and he was like i don't want to make a decision about how to handle i don't want five-year-olds walking around in the robes that's gonna bum everyone out i also don't want a a 13 year old doing a skateboard trick like i you know i want the meryl streep albert brooks age to be considered young how do i do Yes, and I I think that that's like, that's one of the ways you can do world building is that somebody starts asking a question, if you can make them laugh, uh, they kind of forget about their question for a little bit. (laughs) Um, I I just like it too, because uh, like a lot of this movie, very explicitly, this is not like, is like Albert Brooks taking 
religious idea of the afterlife and trying to strip to your point like judgment outside of just self-judgment and like growth uh strip the idea of good or evil or there's like a you know a bad place or a good place but he's still like leaning on a lot of the mecha you know the the things that like we associate culturally with with an afterlife and so like part of the the kind of like the rip torn like big smile like isn't that nice is so funny to me because like that is what like the catholic church dogmatically has said like oh wait a second what what happens if an un you said you have to be baptized to go to heaven according to your religion what happens if an unbaptized uh baby dies and for like two thousand years they're like yeah sorry limbo for them some weird baby realm where they just float around and everyone got upset about that after a while and they're like okay they go to heaven now isn't that nice now they go to heaven are you happy? <laughs> like, it just cannot help but remind me of, like, that same tone of, like, okay, we get it. You're going to be angry if if your your baby who died before you got baptized and a miscarry isn't in heaven with you. So, yep, they go to heaven now. God changed his mind. Shut the doors on limbo. I can't actually – this this very much feels like this is the friendlier, jo- more jokey, jovial alternative to Twin Peaks. Like we just covered, where like the way Twin Peaks handles lore is like, is like, well, I'm not really interested in that. Um, so fuck you. Um, in yeah. in in Albert Brooks's view of the at least his perspective in this movie is like, well, the movie's not about that. It's about adults dealing with having lived something resembling a full life and how they process that and, um how you how how much value is growth and uh what does growth mean and and you know how much growth can be put on us or you know is our parents fault and yada yada like those are questions he was actually interested in answering but he knows that you're going to ask other questions so he kind of smooths it over with with a a bit of a a joke he like yeah he's like yeah yeah i know there are other big questions here but we're gonna we're gonna be cute here and like that i feel like is the approach that most movies um with most high concept comedies should take yeah um and some of them are like but wait hold on (laughs) we gotta slow (laughs) everything down and like that's one of my problems with the i don't want to i'm I'm realizing that everyone listening to this podcast that's watched good place like good place but one of my problems with good place is that like they're like well let's slow everything down to really get in the bureaucracy of this afterlife and i understand michael Schur is really interested in that like he actually sometimes like in, in in while he's building lore he can make uh, a pretty profound philosophical statement what on something that just seems like it's sort of yeah unnecessary and then you get to the where he's going and you're like oh yeah that is pretty interesting but it, it gets exhausting at a certain point because I, I i eventually stop being focused on what the actual issue is at hand yeah um with this it's like i'm never exhausted i'm always sort of casually riding along like and you get to the you get to the point where you need to be to ask the same questions that the characters are asking. Well, Perfect. It's, and it's, yeah, well, that's the other Rip Torn joke, right? Is that, like, you won't understand. And then he finally is like, just tell me. I'm not an idiot. He's like, and then he says, I, you know, I was stuck in the blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I don't understand. He goes, yep, told you. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't need to know. Like, I I think this, this is a movie that gets very easy to get caught up on the bureaucracy. Like, you, you could think, oh, this is one of those, like, 
parodies of bureaucracy in the end. Like, even when you die, you gotta fill out paperwork. And I actually, I actually think it's more about, like, not so much about the bureaucracy, because the bureaucracy is actually really simple, right? Like, it's, there, there's not, like, fill, you gotta fill out eight forms and stuff like that. It's just, like, you are appointed a lawyer uh, that they don't call a lawyer. Prosecutor and defender. They're not prosecutor defenders. They sit before two judges. And you look at a few days of your life and we just see, like, make a case for yourself in a lot of cases. If you feel that you've grown and you, you're ready to move on or you're ready to try try again. And then everything else is just the trappings of, again, a world created, essentially, by the same people that created this world. And, I, and so that allows a lot of well-observed jokes about how humans have created our modern world. <laughs> But then would then create it in uh, in a version where some of the same rules don't apply. So, uh, yeah, the food's great, but also you're in a situation where they'll give you eight pies to take home because they know you like pies, right? Like the, the television shows they watch are so goddamn funny because they they're not that they're. They're not that far removed from the television shows that we're watching, but they're talking about different things because they have different things on their mind. But again, that that's the point. The people that created the television shows that we watch are, are the same people creating the television shows in the afterlife. They are just people who have, quote unquote, graduated to new jobs in this other world. Why would it be all that different from, from the world that we have, except... They're not, you know, beholden to things like, um, you know, cost or uh, death or disease or something like that, um, that we are in this world. Yeah, yeah. It's um, like there's definitely plenty of open questions left over after that. But like, I'm, I'm like, can he die if he gets hit by the bus? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, why is the electricity shocking him? Is that bus yeah. like what? How much does it hurt in this afterworld? Like, I, I don't, I don't totally, there's some, I have some questions there, but like, they ultimately don't particularly matter because it, it gets at the, the, the core point, right? Um, him trying to. Well, and you can make the case that, he, I mean, Albert Brooks, uh, Daniel, I believe is his character's name, right? Mm-hmm. Dan Miller. Um, Daniel specifically has not really embraced the idea that this is the afterlife, Right. So, uh, so one of the one of the kind of ways that they do a really good job of contrasting that Julia, the Meryl Streep character, is ready to move on, and Daniel isn't, is the way that Julia is able to kind of instantly embrace her new reality with how much she enjoys being able to eat all these different foods and something like that, and the way that Daniel essentially is still behaving as if he is earthbound. Whether you mean that, like, in his existing state or in the state that he's going to go to. Like, he still is worried, like, people will judge him for eating too much and all these other things. So I think, like, not that you need to get into the metaphysics of, like, how he got shocked at the end. But, like, the act of being shocked is because he – and the fact that he felt pain from it is not because, like, the pain of – like, obviously, you're in the afterlife. Where are you going to die and go to? Um, But that he himself hadn't – is still seeing this world as essentially a another version of earth. Like he hasn't embraced the inherent difference in the same way that uh, Julia has. Yeah. Like the low stakes here for him, the low stakes I think is supposed to be that when, while you're here, 
um, you're kind of just in a holding pattern and like, you know, you, you just get comfortable while we take time to process your soul. Um, and enjoy yourself. And, like we're not yeah, here to punish yourself. anyone. Yeah. 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 Um, just like, you know, come into a cal- calm sense of, of relaxation. So you can come to, you know, it's almost in a sense, like trying to keep the, 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 the trial, so to speak, impartial because, um, you're coming into it without like, the burdens of, of dealing with reality. But he's sort of taken that sort of numb complacence and riding it into just whatever reality has for him next. You know, like, he's like, he knows that it's better to go on to the next stage, like, because he's been told that by Rip Torn, but he doesn't yeah. like, fundamentally understand it. Yeah, nor does he even want to actually go back to Earth or anything. Like, he... he <laughs> just just, just like Modern to... Romance, he doesn't know what he wants. Yeah, I mean, he, I, but that's why I think there is like an analog, even if obviously, like, I don't, I don't think this is, I don't think it's the same character, but this idea of like, I don't know what's expected of me and I don't know what, what I want is like why he's had so much, so much challenge. I think the big difference is, is that his character in Modern Romance does know what he wants, but what he wants, he's not allowed, quote unquote, to say. And I do, I do get the sense from from Daniel's character that there's a lot more of just general melancholy and ennui. Like, like he, you know, I I I knew I had to get this job, and I knew I had to do this thing, and and like nothing has fundamentally brought me happiness or joy, and it's because I am constantly, constantly self analyzing and second guessing to the point that i've like been been paralyzed by modernity and and life on earth and everything else although i think this one does have a lot more empathy towards him as like established by like one of the first one of the first days they review which is like um like a very like heart-wrenching scene of like him him seeing like his his uh dad uh almost like hit hit his mom while he like cries in a in a playpen yeah yeah the the memory the memory sequences uh are are kind of grueling well they're grueling or funny it it actually in some ways gets a chance for um albert brooks to like go back to his like short film saturday night live stage i think a little bit especially there's a fucking fantastic scene that also speaks to the humanity of all the the judges and the people in the afterlife where they basically just are like, and here's 162 stupid things this guy did. And everyone gets excited to watch and laugh at him, like fucking sawing through his saw table and, and other things like that. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, just a, a straight up comedy montage of him being stupid. That must've taken a long time to do um, yeah. him trying to install an antenna on a roof and it like falling on him and like him cutting through the saw table. Like there's like all these, all these like great little jokes. It must have taken a long time to do because like they're not, none of them are like in like his, his various curly haired wigs change and like no, yeah. he's wearing change and like the location he he's in changes. Like there's like a lot of, there's like a, a, a good sense of like, this is at a different time. This is a different place happens on that montage where where it does feel very magical where you're like how could someone have caught all my dumbest moments and and they're like and here's the role (laughs) 
Uh, it's great, too, because the judges are so excited. It's like fucking America's Funniest Home Videos. They're like, like, hey, we've all been working a long day. Let's see what a moron this guy is. <laughs> I mean, he does. She, she The the uh, the prosecutor does say, uh, and just to, just to prove my point, I've compiled 162 individual moments of stupidity. <laughs> and then I just love the way the judges tap themselves on the, the knee and, like, kind of mouth this guy. And it's, then start it, laughing at all the clips. It's like, it's so goddamn good. And it's why I'm like, I've really come to this idea of like, oh, yeah, these are just humans. They're just humans. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that they, they, like, it's not just that they could be influenced by all this. It's that, like, they are influenced by all this. Like, yeah. they, like the whole conversation they're having, like, even her cheap jabs at, his, at him is like, and <laughs> she keeps coming back to, like, ethics concerns. When in reality, like, the goal of this is to judge his, in- his intelligence and his bravery. And she keeps yeah. going back to, like, times he looked pathetic. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Riptorn is like, Riptorn is like, yeah, this, that's not what this is about. This is about, did he exhibit bravery? Did he, did he fight fear? The fact that the prosecutor has all these, like, extremely sharp barbs for him all day, every day, is, like, where the drama of the movie comes from and where, like, you really start to, like, like Dan. Because, like, it's not just that he, like, comes up with cheap excuses for things, because he definitely does at times. It's that he he's processing all this stuff live as, like, a form of, like, post-life therapy. Like... Oh, yeah. Like... One of the best gags that they go to so many times is when that chair swivels around... Depending on whether it's a clip he's ashamed of or uh, is proud of, it's a slow swivel. And you hear the loud, like, electric. And, like, the the fact that it slowly reveals his face each time, which just is a perfect reaction. Like, is he, does he have, like, a slight smirk and is proud of himself and feels like, yeah, that was a good thing I just watched? Or is he just completely miserable with himself for having to relive through that moment? It's, It's a great gag that works every time. It's, like, reminiscent of, like, game shows for me yeah like, where you're like the mechanics of the show sometimes creates awkward human interactions where you're like yeah. having to hit this loud buzzer uh sometimes makes people like uh unintentionally seem very awkward and you get to see like a little flash of their like what their pure excitement looks like when they're not trying to look cool for the camera like little um it is very like game showy and then like that little burr like the second time it happened i was like this is kind of annoying are they gonna keep cutting this and they kept doing it (laughs) but like over the course of the movie it has like an impact on your your brain yeah you're starting to you're starting to understand that like (laughs) the burr is just an indication that like this is a this is a, a process. This is a set process that is well above his pay grade. He's been assigned. He got assigned his lawyer, um, like, before he even got off the tram. Um, yeah. His lawyer already knows everything about him, and that's not a lie. It does seem like Rip Torn does genuinely know everything about him. And um, the, the the burr is, like, almost like, yeah, it's like a mechanical sort of quality. Like, it, it, it's world building. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just it, at some point it just becomes this like actually let's well, let's get into it because I want to talk more about those scenes and and I feel like we're already kind of uh, diving deep into the movie so Peter let's do it let's talk more about uh, defending your life let's do it
Aaron. Yeah. What's up? What happens in the film Defending Your Life? Albert Brooks plays Daniel, who's an advertising executive who's going and like buying an asshole midlife crisis car, like a Mercedes convertible. Uh, for his 39th birthday, which, fun fact, is what I turned this year. So I'm officially at Albert Brooks dying in defending your life age, Peter. Wow. What a milestone. What a milestone. Uh, yeah, he gets hit by a bus. He's singing songs and swerving all over the place. And he ends up in Judgment City, which is a purgatory-like place, where uh, you go and you find out very quickly you basically have to go. And as we've already said, defend your life. You have a, you're assigned a defender. There's a prosecutor. There's two judges. You show a certain amount of days of your life that make a case. Those days vary. Um, Julia, played by Meryl Streep, who we'll meet later, only shows four days. Uh, and then uh, we do meet a guy in, in a sushi bar who uh, has 15 days. Uh, Albert Brooks has nine days. Uh, a lot of the conversation that occurs when they're trying to figure out, like, it's almost like a what are you in for conversation, is how many days do you have to show. And as the movie goes on, uh, Daniel realizes that even though theoretically the results are not predetermined, they do have a sense of who is likely to move on, who is likely to not based on how many days they've decided to show. And that has put them in various different lodgings, invited to different parties, changes what kind of uh, prosecutors and defenders they have and every and everything else that goes along with it. So uh, he, you know, there's there's a good like 15, 20 minutes of Daniel just like that. He arrives on a tram. Everyone's wearing like white tunics He's watching TV in his hotel room. He's not quite sure what's going on. And, and Rip Torn, who plays his uh, defender, kind of explains all everything that's going to happen. But he's also like, you know, you have a few days here. Enjoy it. Like, we made this place for people to have a good time uh, and try to try to enjoy themselves. There's a past lights pavilion because the thing about the afterlife is that you die. You keep going back. Until you get it right and get to move on. Humans only use 3 to 5% of their brain. Because trust me, one of a very funny line in this movie is once you use more than 5% of your brain, you don't want to live on Earth anymore. Uh, which is uh, very, uh, but somewhat apt, I do think, in general. Um, but uh, he's, he's saying right now, you only use 3% of your brain. I use like 48% of my brain. Uh, and that's the thing. We just keep trying to use more and more of your brain. Uh, and that I think the highest we hear about in this movie is um, is like 50, 52. Yeah, from, I think Buck Henry me. has it. Yeah, Buck Henry has it, who uh, his very funny scene, which we'll talk about here in a second. <clears throat> he uh, he ends up going and uh, to he has the, the first day of defending his life. And they show scenes primarily from childhood. They they show a scene where. He uh, gets bullied by this kid, like when he's eleven years old, and doesn't fight back, and that's something that uh, haunts him the rest of his life. Uh, uh, Rip Torn shows a scene from when he's one years old, and his mom, his dad, is screaming at his mom, and uh, him crying and making eye contact with his dad finally gets him to like stop right before he's about to hit her and rip torn's point is that like he's learned the value of restraint they also show this hilarious scene uh it's kind of a twofer it's a two-hander 
where uh, Rip Torn enters this scene, this part, part of his life into evidence where um, this kid who kept losing his paint supplies or stealing paint supplies or something has, has like lost them again. And Daniel's like, here, use mine. I'll get in trouble for you this time. And then he gets home and his dad yells at him for the paint supplies. And he's like, and he blames the kid for stealing them. Uh, in like a scene the the prosecutor shows like, oh yeah, this selfless act of giving him paint supplies. That kid got sent to boarding school. Um, and then he's like kind of feeling bad about the day because most of the things that uh, even in his favor didn't pan out right. And so he goes to this comedy club and makes a few jokes at the comedian who is failing uh, terribly, mainly because he has no fear or insecurities, as, as I already mentioned. And uh, Meryl Streep's there, one of the only other young people, because there's a common joke about how young they are, because uh, most of the people there are in their, you know, died of, of natural causes later in life. And so they start hanging out and talking to each other and have a good time. And um, as they'll say later, like the the ability of the, them, you know, the, without the pressures of of life and being in this state where they don't have expectations for where their relationship could or, or should go, that they have this kind of effortless dynamic. And one thing I really like about this that they don't do uh, – Seinfeld gets this – gets noted for this a lot, which I think is apt. Is like one of the reasons that Seinfeld is really good is that you have all these shows and and TV shows where the, the main characters are supposed to be funny and no one ever laughs at them. Like, uh, you know, Chandler on Friends is a really good example of theoretically a character who all 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 the friends are like, you're the funny one, you make jokes. And he literally never makes anyone laugh. They always <laughs> just say sarcastic comments and are like, they seem to hate him. So uh, that is uh, that is uh, that is, um, uh, I think, kind of reminiscent of what we, what we talked about in the Modern Romance episode where it's like, like, my my wife will tell me I'm funny, but like, yeah, we we. She doesn't laugh at my jokes very often. That's all. Yeah. Ever. But like Seinfeld is a really good example where like, you know, when Jerry says funny things, Elaine laughs. Like you get a dynamic that like that comedy exists in their world besides just for the audience sake, uh, which I think is important. And one thing I really love about these these scenes is that like uh, Daniel is very charming and does have a lot of like Albert Brooks quick quick jokes and you know and Meryl Streep's character laughs quite a bit at them and like there there immediately is this like they describe it later as I said as effortless but you can tell like there's there's something there's something here uh he asked them to, or her to go to dinner and, and and she says that she's hanging out with her lawyer that night um because of how good the day has been going and, and they think it'll go by pretty quickly um, so he goes to his next day of uh, stuff into adulthood, and it's kind of the same thing. It's essentially like every clip they show is really um, mundane. It's like him not investing in something. Uh, the biggest thing is him getting in a snowmobile accident, which comes near the end. And you kind of or like him uh, going to ask for a raise or wanting to ask for a raise for his boss or sorry, not a raise, but a. Uh, a job offer and saying what salary he'll take and then not taking it or going to go speak at this convention that he was scared of. And then there's a gas leak and he never gets to speak at it. And like, you really start getting the sense that even in his like high or low moments that they've chosen for this, like, you know, uh, a cosmic presentation, it's really minor. 
Like his successes are are him, uh, you know, or his successes or failures are him like accepting a job without asking for a raise or whether he would have been willing to speak in front of a large crowd if the gas leak hadn't been there or, or all these other things. And then that contrasts later when he stops in early to Julia's uh, Julia is one of the days that she's showing and she's rescuing, she's rescuing her family and the cat from a fire. And he walks in and like uh, her prosecutors, like, thanks for playing it again. I just wanted to see it one more time. And everyone's crying and stuff. And, you know, he's starting to have the sense that um, as he's had for a while, that not only is he going back, but he's kind of lived a meaningless life to some effect where like, there's nothing really to show. So they go to the last day. They show the snowmobile accident where he breaks his leg. He's very funny. Um, he's very funny when he talks about, like, he's not scared to go back on snowmobiles. He just hates them and lists a bunch of reasons that seem probably called from Albert Brooks's real life about why he fucking hates snowmobiles. Um, and, <laughs> and again, the one thing I like about the whole time, the judges are kind of laughing and amused. They're not, like, gunning for him. They see... They're interested to what he actually has to say through this process, even if they ultimately end up ruling at the end that he's going to go back and, and unshockingly. And they kind of they seal his fate by the night before Julia. They have this great date. They walk around. That's when they tell the story of their families and their life. And they talk about how effortless their relationship is and something that they've never had. Either of them have ever had in their life. And that even even Julia saying like, I worked very hard at all these relationships. They were important to me, and I don't have to work hard at this. I don't have to. I'm not stuck with the perceptions of reality. And Julia asks, asks Daniel to come and spend the night with him, and he's he basically says, "I can't. You're going on, and I'm I'm probably going back. And what if it? I've never been more in love with someone than I have with you. And if I sleep with you, what if it's so great that I'm never able to?" get over it or ever like anything could ever live up to that or on the on the flip side this relationship is so perfect and amazing what if i sleep with you and it's not it's not as amazing as all of this is i would i'd feel like i've ruined uh this these last moments with you and his prosecutor plays that scene uh in this and rip torn has such a fucking funny line uh when she says when she plays a scene of the night before not on Earth, but in the afterlife. And he goes, and Rip Torn says, you're playing a scene from here? I was told we weren't doing that anymore. And one of the judges says, no one told you that, Mr. <laughs> it does come back to your, it does come back to your, uh, your central thesis that these people have just uh, transcended the system enough that they uh, are actually kind of silly, silly weird people, but they, uh, <laughs> they have an inflated sense of ego. Um, and yeah. a totally fake, total similar to the 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 brain percentage usage um, statistic. Uh, totally fake sense of like, well, he got to fifty two percent. That's off the charts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All these 100%. people stoking their own ego. I mean, Albert Brooks calls it pretty um, pretty quickly when he's like, "I left a world of penis envy, and now I have to live with with brain envy." And even Julia makes a lot of jokes about like his brain was this big and finds the whole thing very, very, very silly. But um, that whole line delivery is like, "I was told we weren't doing that anymore. No one's told you that." <laughs> like, so clearly <laughs> this happens occasionally, which I also think is very funny. But shows that scene. He's like, "Look, this is someone who 
you could have like everything that you saw here today about you not taking a leap to do something that you want to do because you're worried about all the different ways it could hurt you. You you haven't learned anything, right? Because you're still doing. It. Yeah. And he kind of accepts his fate, realizes that that sucked, and so he's getting on the bus to go back, and she's getting on her bus to go um, to to the next. The next place and he you know he kind of snaps he's like no i'm not gonna lose you and he jumps he you know forces himself out of his seatbelt, runs in front of a bunch of buses jumps on the side of this bus and they're both screaming about how much they love each other and to let him in and the, the and the, just a fantastic ending the camera pans back and you and there's the there's rip torn and uh and the prosecutor and the two judges watching it on the screen and Rick Torn has a big smile on his face, and he's like, uh, "Seen enough?" And everyone kind of nods, and they they say that he can go, he can go on to the next place, and they open the bus door, uh, and the movie ends right there. It's like kind of this perfect, like somewhat surprising ending. Like you do get the sense that he was going to go back, but the fact that they are they are kind of still watching as if they they haven't made their final decision and they all wanted to see what he would do under the circumstances of being separated from someone that he loves is, is, is very sweet and uh, something that gets me choked up every time I see this movie. And again, it ends perfectly too, because they just go into the tunnel. You don't know what's next for them or their relationship. And the movie is not interested in trying to make you figure out what comes next. It's just that, Regardless, um, he has he he has taken the step that he needs to at least try to do something that will make him uh, happier or a better person or however you. Yeah. Um. Thanks for doing the recap. the The ending, I think, is is yeah. It, it's it's just about perfect. Um, because yeah, he could have gone with something kind of pessimistic. Uh, he could could have gone with something. Um, that is, uh, maybe more cutting. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think the movie really calls for that. Like, I, th- I think that the, 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 like, <laughs> we already know that life is a series of like disappointments and like, yeah, uh, failures to uh, moments that you failed to grow, um, or you grew, but you didn't grow quite enough. You're still feeling pangs of the old you. And like, we still have questions about whether or not, like, can people really change? Um, yeah, yes, but no, but yes, but no. Um, and like, we already have those questions in our everyday life. I don't know if at the end we needed some sort of cosmic punishment for this man for being human. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually like far more valuable, I think, to have a, an ending wherein, um, our protagonist has a very clear sort of model to to chase after, which is that yeah. like he's he's pretty carefree. Um, I I can imagine he's more carefree than he would have been before. Like he's he's kind of on whatever heaven he, heaven opioids. Yeah. Um, yeah. Heaven opiates. That, heaven that heaven quaaludes. Yeah, heaven ludes. Um, like a low dose, like a quarter lude. All day, every day in his, you know, massive uh, shrimp bowl or whatever. All of that is happening, but he still has somebody that's like inspires him and like wants him to be better. Yeah. And like, that's like what true romantic relationships are. Where you're like, man, like she is just so incredible. Like if I 
you know, if I just took risks like this all the time, like I could have victories like this all the time. Like I get to hang out with this person. Like the true, truly successful relationships can be like a weird, like inspiration story where like you feel more safe to take risks and be brave and, and try things out because like, you know, at the end of the day, like you have that person to go home to. Um, and uh, I, I, that's, that's something that I think people probably needed to hear more than they needed to hear. Like, well, guess what? You're going to fuck up your entire life and then you're going to the afterlife and someone's going to say, oh, well, you fucked up. And then you're going to get a cosmic punishment for fucking up. Like, I understand it's deeper than that. But like emotionally, like, I don't know if people really need that lesson. It, it's not like that was going to be the tacked on ending. The The love story became a bigger part of the script after he cast Meryl Streep specifically and then started rewriting and, and rewriting and kind of changed a lot of the direction of the movie. But I mean, the kind of like, are you able to escape your own neuroses is in some ways like, you know, again, he Albert Brooks is not the most prolific of filmmakers. But I think even having only seen modern romance, you can understand that I think for the most part his movies lean towards this idea that you can't. Or at least the characters that he portrays can't. Not that there's not people that exist in the world that do that. So I agree that that I think the movie would be lesser if it had the more like cynical, like, Oh man, you are just not able to get over any of this. Like you got to go back as a horse. We got to start. We got to start you before a certain like human base level, and, and then and then we're going to try to work our way back or something like that. But it would be more in line with like an Albert Brooks movie. I I think how emotional and and downright like sappy like a fucking Frank Capra movie this this movie ends with is is it's not at odds with the rest of the movie. But it is something very new for an Albert Brooks movie, which is something, you know, I, I hadn't seen enough of his movies. And again, he, I guess, you know, to that point, he doesn't have enough of his movies. But it, it felt really um, different and something about it not still being, a, I think, a recognizable kind of Albert Brooks movie that's not, that is that is hitting a realism that feels... Um, that feels recognizable makes the big romantic gesture at the end of the movie feel earned in a way that I think a lot of contemporary romantic comedies don't like the stakes are not like you lied, you cheated, like how I'm going to win someone back or something like that. Like, you know, they do have a very affable, easygoing relationship. They make each other laugh. They walk. They spend time with each other. They have conversations. Neither of them are, like, you know, particularly, like, um, have particular needs that aren't being met by their existing relationship or anything like that. So, you know, the it doesn't have all of this, this stuff that I hate in most romantic comedies, which are, like, they like each other, they like each other, they like each other. And then someone fucks up and they got to somehow overcome that. It's, it's more just like they're being separated by the circumstances that they're in um, that has like the weight of their entire past life and relationships on them, which is recognizable to our own relationships, right? Like when you meet someone new, 
the weight of everything you've ever done before can have an impact on that relationship. And this time it's very literal in that they're on buses going in different directions. But I think as a metaphor, that works really well too. Yeah. I I think that one of my issues with the movie, like a movie that I found very charming and very sweet and like genuinely enjoyed every minute that I watched it. I do think the relationship escalates way too quickly. Yeah. I mean, she says, I love you to him. It's like, do you? And it's not because they just met yesterday. It's that, like, they haven't gone through enough. Like, the sort of calm, like, heaven ambient sort of uh, uh, reality they're in creates this sort of scenario where, like, nothing crazy happens to them, where they can, like, really bond over it. It's just sort of like, they're like, they, they found each other. They seem to like each other. They seem to be attracted to each other. Like, I, I don't have the sense in this movie that, like, um, there's some sort of great romance that like needs to needs to live on beyond the confines of this movie like if she's just intended to sort of be like you know just the fact that he's willing to chase her and like he's having such a great time with her and it's not just about sex like just the fact that he's willing to chase her like means that he's going through some sort of growth great because at the same time like i think she's a fully developed character she's not yeah like a manic pixie dream girl um but like in another sense, I do kind of think like both of them. I think like how I, how how well you think they address it, I think, is the fact that like it's the confines of a movie and we want our characters to be in love and we don't have, you know, I mean, that's a problem with so many movies. And uh, I yeah, will say this is not this is not entirely this movie's fault. It's it's yeah. something that you kind of have to have a buy in with most rom coms where you're like, I, I, I get that you guys had like two good dates, but like what what have you gone through that would prove that this is some sort of you know could be the heaven ludes uh but I also I, I think at the very least the movie understands that they need to address that to some point. so I, I really like that scene of like where where Julia's kind of like I know everyone here is kind of treating me like I'm this kind of savior, but like my relationships work they were really tough and I was able to like be a good person in them through a lot of like personal costs to myself and personal stress and like, you know, which makes sense. Like she's, she's being judged in the afterlife for how she overcame those conflicts or those, those obstacles. Um, You know, so she clearly had, was very, was very good at overcoming her fear or, you know, foibles or uh, deficits or whatever else there are, like, and and be a good mother and a loving uh, wife, which she says directly. Um, But that here, like, with him, she doesn't feel like she has to, like, she doesn't feel that same sense of, uh, burning desire to make make a relationship or a conversation or a moment work and you know to you you would be right peter in criticism that like that's usually true early on in good relationships too like mo- most people who have a couple good dates uh aren't like hey you know date number two takes work you got to do the work to make the second date go well because of all the emotional baggage from the first date. Like that's that's a later on in a couple thing. Yes. But but at but I like that she like I I think that whole conversation cuz they have like a 15 minute scene where they're walking around those fo- fountains and telling each other about it, their lives and and why they like and even though like there is a little bit of the manic pixie energy in there like I think seeing someone who is able to overcome 
overcome those and, and still like draw people in and kind of be like, you know, you see all these scenes of like Julia, uh, you know, having these like conversations with her lawyers or other people in the courtroom or all these people just like find her fun to talk to and interesting. And, you know, she has interesting things to say and she has like passions for like how much she likes the food and stuff like that. And you see someone, you know, to even though he's in the afterlife and is being like, no one is judging him for like how much he eats or how he spends his time or where he's at or that he's on a date or anything like that. He cannot get over this idea that like, he still has to meet people's expectations in a way that they've defined. And so seeing someone who is able to effortlessly kind of slip into a a world where she uh, isn't isn't bound by those kind of earthly concerns is something that he like specifically calls out besides her just being like you know a a, a beautiful girl in a, in the afterlife with a lot of uh, a lot of Kiwanis Club members um, <laughs> you know that that there's something there that is a is an attraction to use the old analogy like opposites attract he's seeing someone who is very unlike him and someone that he clearly wants to be more like yeah yeah i'm having a little bit of trouble understanding entirely what she sees in him other than he's he's um oh he's the lead of the movie and he wrote it oh that'll do it (laughs) i mean there's that too like i'm not yeah i mean like i I understand what he sees in her obviously because like the opposites attract like she's everything that he he wants to be like she's free and happy and beautiful and and he's I mean, apparently she likes him because he's very low stakes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which I'm incapable of disappointing you. You're 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 floor solo. I'm also not going to pretend that I know what women want out of relationships, so maybe I should stop here. But it's just one of those things where, like, maybe it's It's just a very common, like, yeah, yeah. But that's also like that's what that's that happens with most romantic comedies, where I'm like. And here, like, okay, so like a romantic comedy, I think actually does it well because by the end, I fully understand why they need each other. Is when Harry met Sally, but like even by the end, I'm like, Meg Ryan doesn't need him. <laughs> like, like even in the perfect. Why example, does Mary Mary like him and Robert in the last movie? I mean, that that seems even less believable. Yeah, yeah, she's she's insecure in a way that's purely self harming. Um, he's insecure in a way that sort of has splash damage all around him. Yeah. He's the shotgun blast of, uh, <laughs> yeah. of psychological uh, harm. That is like the one criticism I would have with this movie. I agree with you. I, I have it in my notes of like, you still have to kind of get over the idea of like people on a second date saying, I love you. And I, I think at, at the very least, the movie has the conversation, how convinced you are by it and whether that works for you. It's like how much you're able to hand wave away the idea that like that's just how these movies have to work because love. Uh, it's a it's a genre convention. Yeah, yeah, I I, yeah. I I get it. Um, but it's we I guess we don't do that many movies where someone says I love you after a date. So <laughs> I get that we don't discuss it all that often. It is something that like when it happened, it took me aback and I couldn't quite parse it. So I needed to to bring it up. But yeah, I mean, I can see, I can, I can see why he's, he's appealing. Like, um, Albert Brooks, we, I, I, he is funny and charming. Like that. I don't, I don't think of, I don't think of Albert Brooks this way. I didn't think of Albert Brooks this way before these two movies. 
But um, Albert Brooks is, like, super handsome in modern romance. Like, um... Yeah, he's, he's kind of jacked. I told yeah, you. he's kind of in like really good shape, and he's got like a cut jaw, and he's he's got this like sort of sad puppy dog quality. Like he is very attractive in modern romance, and in this, you know, he's still got a lot of those features. It's just that he, as he got older, he got a little goofier, um, and so like, and, and like a lot of men, like you know, it's like, no, I'm I'm not gonna see Albert Brooks in Drive and be like, oh, what a hunk, like. A, a lot of a lot of men they get in their the older age like they might carry the dignity of their years but they maybe don't carry like the like the handsomeness into that next age i don't know um yeah i mean they're they're one of the funniest things about broadcast news like is like which hunk is holly hunter gonna choose albert brooks or william hurt and william hurt is supposed to be the uh you know the sexy choice but it's like the dad from lost in space is the sexy choice you know i'm <laughs> coming at it from like my perception like these are both old men yes yes when you when you um you came into it from the perspective of like knowing them as yeah like old men who just like so nemo's dad <laughs> that's yeah that's the sexy guy in this movie i mean that's why like reading that i'm essentially the same age <laughs> As he is in defending the life, bums me out quite a yeah. bit because you. I saw this movie when I was like, you know, way younger. Yeah, what? and he's and, and like he's uh, not charmingly insecure in modern romance, but I think he's charmingly insecure in this. Where it's like, like a lot of a lot of women or and a lot of people, like myself included, are kind of attracted to humility. Um, it's just that, like you know. Um, Meryl Streep is like so close to being a manic pixie dream girl like proto version in this where she's just like happy all the time and she's loving everything and she wants to take him to all these fabulous places and she feels so deeply um but she because it's Meryl Streep I think more I think more is there because it's Meryl Streep not because of the script um because it's Meryl Streep there's a level of depth there that gets added that like typically does not in that sort of um inspiring women in rom-coms uh field generally doesn't happen yeah i think that's i think that's right um yeah she i mean she does a really good job with with the role again un unsurprisingly and you you can see why albert brooks the the writer of this movie was like oh wait maybe my character would react differently if I was like having a a conversation with, with Meryl Streep. I love though, the way no one ever comes out and says like that. We think Meryl Streep or or Julia and like people like her are better than you. But the fact that there's still like a weird class system that exists in heaven is very funny. People, certain people get more or less days. Yeah. More. And they get more or less days, but also like, even though theoretically he can go and order whatever he wants, right? Like that's the whole thing. Go to any of these restaurants. They'll make whatever you want. It's the best food you've ever had. She has fancier whatever you want. Like they're like caviar and champagne hour at the hotel that she's staying at. And they're like, oh yeah, I love, he's talking about like the chocolate he gets on his pillow. And he, she's like, oh yeah, those giant chocolate swans were amazing. And he's like, I meant like, I got a mint. And like everyone he goes, when they ask him how many days, they're always like, Ooh, nine days. And then when you finally meet someone who has more days, 
it's like this really like depressingly sad guy sitting at the sushi bar who's like nine days oh yeah man i got 15 he's like oh how did you die shot in the head (laughs) (laughs) he's like oh okay he's like hey i'm gonna head to the bathroom you want to come with me it's like no no, thank you (laughs) i'm not sure i'm not sure uh is there he's bumping coke in the in in judgment city's uh bathroom but it's the whole thing is very funny but like again no one ever comes out and tells him that uh that he has the markings of someone who like hasn't achieved as much based on their merit system um but even rip torn is constantly saying like you're very concerned about what we think of um because he is he just is noticing these things that don't seem like everyone is starting from the the same place and i him noting all that is also one of the reasons that julia keeps finding him fun to be around i think one of the things that really does work about the relationship is that like this is a world of people who again have different um a different class system and a different uh things that denote like uh wealth and power which is like brain percentage and stuff like that but julia julia is not like even though she's being embraced by them she also has the same level of kind of like cynicism or uh maybe like uh humorous cynicism but thinks they're all full of shit too right so that's another i think connection that they have in that you know she's she's not actually impressed that like her lawyer has that 51 percent uses 51 percent of her brain because she doesn't know what that means and so like i think there's a commiseration in a world of, of of loonies uh, that that also helps drive their relationship. It does come back to the central point that, like, you seem concerned. <laughs> like, it, it comes back to the central theme that um, this this world is like this is supposed to be sort of a holding pattern limbo, like limbo place. Like, you can have like creature comforts and and and, and enjoy yourself, but like, you're not really affecting change. You're sort of just like passing through the system. Um, and while you're here, feel free, have a good time. Like. We're good. Um, there's no reason for you to be miserable. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, you're, you're right. There's, like, something about, like, how he's, like, even, like, knowing he's dead, like, he's still just so cautious. And he sort of, like, lets anybody take him where he's supposed to go. He's, like, yeah, d- like, he makes almost no decisions until the last 15 minutes. Yeah, he's still, like, uh, he's, he's still trying to figure out what the societal expectations are. Yes, 100%. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't have a whole lot else to say about this movie, except for, like, I find the calmingness of it charming. Like, Rip Torn is obviously the, the real star of this movie, and, and uh, Albert Brooks and Rip Torn together having this sort of, like, professional dynamic that you can't tell how much Rip Torn is pretending. <laughs> like, it's, yeah. it's, like, it's just incredible. Because, like, it's like Rip Torn... He's incapable of sincerity, right? Yeah, like, but, like, that's... Rip Torn seems to like his job. He seems to like Daniel for that matter. Yeah, he's yeah, he seems to. But since it's it's Rip Torn, <laughs> you're like you're like, are you the afterlife's version of like a smarmy lawyer who like will never stop smiling with shark teeth at you, but like, you know, will will bite when you turn your back? Like, maybe. But like that that the the, the sort of low key tension in this adds like a sort of comedy to it that I, I particularly like because um, it's yeah again it's not someone it's not Saint Peter pulling a lever and dropping someone into hell it's like um, uh, him being like oh you wouldn't understand and you're like what does he say he's like 
he was like, I was at the, I, I was at the, the I, I was stuck in the like the memories something. He's like, he's like, know. I was stuck in the memory circle, and he's like, yeah. what? And he's like, I told you you wouldn't understand. Like that the 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 little the little like and and the little bit of joy that Rip Torn gets out of um just lending like a peek behind the curtain to this process because the whole process is obscured by bureaucracy and by sort of human creature comforts because that makes people question things less there's a reason why when everyone goes out to dinner they know what to do because they went to dinner their entire lives right like yeah um people arrive at restaurants they just kind of like uh, somebody says you know sit down in that chair they sit down in the chair they order food and they eat like that's a lot of what they're doing they know they know what to do when they're in their hotel room you can shower and get cleaned up you can watch tv like these these things are all sort of there to comfort them and, and, and lend a sort of structure to their days like because it resembles reality and they're not trying to like have somebody have some sort of fucking epiphany before they transcend to the next level of the universe um or they go back they get their memory scrubbed and go back like it's 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 very much like this team is this team of like uh i don't know superhumans or spiritual angel humans or whatever are like <laughs> just trying to concoct a little like um comforting like simulacra of reality yeah and be and because of that um they're they're like very concerned about whether or not it works they're like there's a suggestion box over there <laughs> yeah like how can we how can we help a little bit of your your comforts like the fact that they ride a tram either back to earth or into the next realm of reality is like clearly like the visualization of this would be like a fucking light show or whatever right yeah but, it's it's a it's a trans process. You've you've, you've 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 been to Disneyland or you've seen Disneyland. You understand. Well, again, the the thing that I keep coming back to is that the people that designed Disneyland probably are now in Judgment City designing the transportation system. Like, <laughs> I love that there's a there's a through line. There's they don't meet an angel. They don't meet any supernatural creatures. Everyone we meet that works in Judgment City used to be a human on Earth, and that yes, that that is the part that makes so much of the comedy of like what you see in Judgment City so perfect because it's not the work of angels and demons and other things that are like creating a trying to like um trying to create a facsimile. Uh, of of earth for creature conference it is actual humans just doing what they know in making judgment city and i i think that distinction makes it so much funnier yeah because it's it's not a it's not a you know a, a farce to to make people comfortable it's just what they know i don't as for as smart as they supposedly are like I st I still know a tram gets per uh, someone uh, from one place to the other. So why would I even try to think of something something more uh, more majestic or magical? And trams are comfortable, particularly the the one at the end is more of a bus, which like I don't like. I I love public Ooh, transportation, bus. but like buses. Have you ever have you ever ridden on a Greyhound any uh, long distance? Uh, I did Mega Bus, which I imagine is roughly similar. I. I don't know if it's a regional thing. I, I've never heard of a mega bus. Um, they're in the Midwest. Great. Um, maybe they're gone now, but like they used to take you from like you could get like on a mega bus from like Union Station to St. Louis. Okay, so that's like a Greyhound. Yeah. Oh, uh, a scene I love uh, in this movie is when he really he has to call Julia's hotel. 
and uh, he realizes he doesn't know her last name. Yeah. And he's that, that is that is the movie being self-aware about how very self-aware of how little they know each other. And he has to leave a message. There's two Julias. So he has to leave a message for both of them. Um, and so, so he's dictating it to the, the concierge or whatever with uh, the fact that he's speaking to two people in mind. And he has a line that says, tell them both. <laughs> I love them more than life itself. <laughs> So, so good. Uh, don't like if someone one of them comes. Don't don't even bother trying to say this could be meant for you. Like just tell them both that I love them more than life itself. Um, <laughs> Would have been a good gag if like the other Julia was on the bus too, and she's like, "I love you too," but that probably would have taken away from the drama of the moment. Yeah, one last joke probably it would have done it done away with it, but it, but it would have been cute. So I mean, I guess we're kind of we're kind of pointing towards the end, but I have one central question left to ask you. Yeah, sure. Do you think that the central thesis, the central philosophy of this, wherein fear is the thing that holds us back from self-realization, from um, doing great things in our life, you know, so, so sort of both like internal achievement and external achievement, that fear is, you know, the thing that like animals feel, but like as human beings, we should be on this this uh, this other level and that like we should be able to understand that like um, life is... Life is uh, full of risk, and you should ascertain that risk before you make a choice, but you shouldn't let fear stop you from doing things that you know you need to do. Do you find that central sort of philosophy of this, that that's, that is what guides all of the universe, that you can only ascend, your intellect can only ascend um, when you've given up on fear? Do you, do you find that compelling? No. No, I mean, not really. <laughs> I, I, I actually, like... I, one of the other things that makes the overall, um, I think, thesis, we talked about this, that their whole thing is like you're trying to get like percentage of brain usage is like the whole point of the universe to continue to essentially, I think Rip Taylor says, like to continue to make your you are a cog in the universe and they want to continue to like refine the cogs and the processes so that the universe moves smoothly. That's why they don't want anyone to move on that's not ready to be at the next next stage because because the cog the machine won't function as 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 efficiently it's an inelegant metaphor but i i get what they're going for so i mean yeah i think the idea that like the goal of life is to like attain intelligence doesn't work i think fear is obvious i mean fight or flight and all those kind of evolutionary traits of our society is 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 a big part i do i do find like you know even when when you talk about like a lot of people with terrible philosophies like a lot of people would smarter than me would say that fear is driving it like right like how fascism works for example um is that like you scare people into saying that like these people are your enemy and i can i can make you less afraid or, or save you from the bad guys and stuff like that i just i think part of it and, and albert brooks actually or or daniel has a lot of this too is like so many of the moments that they choose that they're really like getting over are like um and, and he keeps calling this out are like financial implication and stuff like that like rick torn's big scene that shows that he's not afraid is he spends three thousand dollars of of the nine thousand dollars to his name on a first class ticket for creature conference and his prosecutor is showing scenes like he could have he like he, that he does invest ten thousand dollars but he doesn't invest in uh 
Casio watches instead invests his money in like I don't know Greenpeace or whatever the fuck he invested the money in something that that oh no it, even funnier than that he invests them in cattle and then they ask him what happened to the cattle and he said he never got a straight answer but I know they lost their teeth which is a very very funny joke but like I I don't know I I don't I mean I don't think the Part of the reason why I think my central idea of this movie is that, like, these are still fallible humans that are creating this process or a part of this process is, like, I don't find their overall, like, boiled down thesis all all that compelling. I think it lacks a lot of nuance, and I think that's evident from even Albert Brooks trying to come up with examples of, of, of fear being the only pri- – or the primary motivator – in life for how you can be judged that it all comes down to like taking random risks that ultimately like don't matter in a cosmic in a cosmic gumbo (laughs) yeah yeah i i feel like this film is sort of a cosmic gumbo yeah um you're you're i think you're right i it is one of those things where like any idea of the afterlife that boils down the human experience down to like this is how you're going to be judged yeah human life is like 90 percent that weird gray liminal space so like i don't like uh most of reality actually most of our lives is just this like weird middling soup and then you've got five percent incredible wonderful moments and then you got five percent of the worst shit that's ever happened to you and then like everything else in between is kind of like yeah it's okay It's, it's yeah you know the sandwich had, they had some sort of like artisanal mayo on this and it was really good. It was like better than normal mayo, but yeah, I'm not like, like a huge mayo guy though. That's life, I think, is is being excited <laughs> that a sandwich has like a little fancier mayo, but being like, eh, mayo's fine. Yeah, and like, I I, I like how much Daniel's like, what is like, this defines me in some way because I didn't do this. Like, like, I think like if I was in defending my life or you know, the prosecutor can be like, and every time he went to this restaurant, he was afraid to try something new because he just wanted to order what he likes. It's like, would you call that fear or just like, you know, just who cares? Like, I know I like this and I don't, I, I don't need to risk my meal on something that could be better when in my past that those other things on the menu, I don't like as much. Like, you know, like that's, I mean, it, and and I think part of it with Daniel is that, that like his big victory moment is that he spent three thousand dollars on a first class ticket. The idea that like there's not that much here that sometimes you don't always defend or prosecute the Julia's of the world who has like house fires, like saving kids and cats from house fires to hang your head on. Sometimes you know some people do live li- uh, live in existence, especially an Albert Brooks character whose like big victory is spending money on a first class ticket. So I think that tracks from that perspective. Even the movie calls out that the way that they're representing fear or not fear just feels a little bit eye rolling. Yeah, I, I I think that that comes back to something that like I hadn't thought about much when I was watching the movie, but like you keep have you keep coming back to, which is that like the people running this program are kind of dumb. And well, yeah, like that's the thing is that I don't even I don't in the think trial they can't yeah. agree on the rubric. <laughs> like yeah, even in the trial they're arguing about like what the rubric is. Yeah, I think that's right. That's the thing is like I'm not caught up on this because I don't think Albert Brooks, the writer, or Daniel as Albert Brooks, the character, puts much stock into their into their system at all. And if anything, it's just that they've decided that because their brains are bigger, 
the system works. And so they're following a process, and at least the process has room for nuance, right? Like, and room for the fact that, like, they aren't judging people good or bad. They're judging people by this this arbitrary metric that gets them to go on, but that the metric itself is no more arbitrary than some sort of point system for sins that we're supposed to keep track of. Yeah, it's, it's, it is just sort of like a system to, designed to engage um, action. And like, yeah. that's the other thing is like, I don't know, like you could, somebody could watch this movie and be like, yeah, that's, I'm going to change my entire philosophy to be YOLO all the time. Just any, any time that there's a risk in front of me and it makes me a little nervous, I'm going to chase that risk. <laughs> you know, I could get addicted to meth, but I could have never really fun. I could have a really good party and like this album more than I currently do. Like, I mean, yeah, of course, fear is a big factor in our life. Like, um, but I mean, there's a there's a lot of other stuff, and I hate that I said fear factor. That feels like a giant mistake on my part. We're gonna get swarmed. I think that's gonna be on my defending your life. You said fear factor. <laughs> you know who hosted Fear Factor? Little person who just took down seventy episodes of their podcast. <laughs> <laughs> i think we should start advertising on our podcast that we've taken down zero episodes for saying horribly uh racist language yeah we kept them all up yeah they're all <laughs> god damn it <laughs> uh yeah i guess that you're right you this is why we don't do any advertising because <laughs> Because clearly, because of my, my, because of my yeah, we're, gonna all, we're also going to get a bunch of fucking like manga people. Like these people keep up their shows where they say the n word. <laughs> we do, we do keep up a hundred percent of the shows where we said of n word. We've said the n word in zero episodes. Yeah, and they're but... all well. There, we haven't taken down any episodes where we said the. N-word. So yeah, I. Uh... I think one of the fun things about doing this this month, Peter, is that like I recognize that these films are really good, but also very like light. We don't have I don't think we need to, that was our goal, right? We don't want to do four hours of, of neon genesis Evangelion type analysis on defending your life. It is a very charming, low stakes. Uh, I mean, I guess the stakes for Daniel are pretty high, but for you know, it's. No one's evil. No one's a bad guy. Uh, people are, despite how big they say their brains are, are subject to all the just sort of like trying to get through the day and their job as anyone else is. And I, I, I really love this movie because it takes a kind of, even though Albert Brooks is not the only, Albert Brooks is not the only person who made movies about these kind of like uh, cynical people who are more concerned with societal societal intrusions or societal uh, breaking societal norms than they are their own like happiness and things like that and it's so funny because i'm kind of doing i'm doing a rewatch of seinfeld which i always say is my my favorite show and like albert brooks in this and even a little bit in modern romance just reminds me so much of, of george costanza and obviously i'm assuming that uh you know, the Larry David, Albert Brooks, like, style of comedy is very close to each other. And they ran in the same circles and both worked at Saturday Night Live. And as a matter of fact, Albert Brooks was just on a uh, the season premiere of Curb Your Enthusiasm last year, um, which felt like a match, <laughs> a very funny match made in heaven um, or in Judgment City. 
it's just such a common like trope and i think this movie does a really good job of recognizing like everything that we're seeing is somewhat low stakes but also like let's work to get this person out of that kind of shell and that's something that albert brooks doesn't do in most of his other movies and i think it you know besides some of the understandable like shoe leather that you have to kind of ingest to just accept that two people who just met a couple days ago are completely in love with each other um i think you know the movie really like works as a one of the best like romantic comedies and like uh somewhat sappy love stories of the 90s and you know we're going to talk about two other albert brooks movies that kind of go backwards but I think in some ways, like, of his first four movies, of his first, like, 13 years of making making films, I think this is kind of the perfect send-off, too, to all the different variations of the Albert Brooks characters we get in these first four movies. So, for us, we're, it's only the halfway point, but I also think it's kind of a perfect perfect ending for the movies that he made in the, in the, in the 80s and, and early 90s. All right, Aaron, what is next, real life? You're right. After Judgment City, what comes next, of course, Peter, is real life. Yeah. Yeah. I meant after we're done recording. Real life. Oh, that, yeah, real life is is there, too. <sighs> real stupid life. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, we're doing, we're doing his first movie, 1979's Real Life, uh, and Ethan Warren... Uh, famed writer and editor at Brightwall Dark Room, famed guest of a bunch of bullshit nonsense that we do on this podcast, will get to join us for an episode that he can, um, speaking of fear, Peter, that he can promote freely without fear of people judging him for uh, what a bunch of ridiculous nonsense he participates in with us. Yeah, it's it's just it's just so nice of him to perform the self-destructive act of hanging out with us when he could be doing literally anything else. Yeah, he is he's a, he's a he's a he's a filmmaker, a playwright, a um, a book a right? critic, a what? A book right? Yeah, a book right? That's what they call him. Uh yeah. Uh and and sometimes he uh leaves fake voicemails for us um <laughs> so yeah i think i think having ethan on to discuss something that is uh is actually something uh that is not uh stupid <laughs> it's good it's good it's good for him it's good for us too probably I've, I've joked about that he's he's definitely one of the few the guests that we have on that like has the biggest audience to promote what we're doing here too naturally and we've taken that opportunity that he has been very generous in offering and made sure that's impossible for him to do <laughs> and I think uh, that tells you a little bit about our fear of success uh, and then we're gonna wrap up the month with lost in America with uh david clark who we love having on the show and they haven't been on in quite a while and that's 100 percent our fault but we're gonna fix that when we get lost in america with them uh yeah let's get lost get lost get get out of here night <laughs> Everyone is trying
get to the bar Name of the bar The bar is called heaven The band in heaven They play my favorite song Play it one more time Play it all night long Oh, heaven, heaven is the place A place where nothing, nothing ever happens Heaven, heaven is a place A place where Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch. If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, It wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, (laughs) If you can't, (laughs) uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand and you want to support the show. We truly, absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, We really do appreciate you. Uh, With kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>